It's Friday, July 17, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined shortly by our CEO and founder, Rao Powell from Little Cayman. But first, Jack Farley with today's news. Thanks, Ash. Netflix released its earnings last night, a big swing and a miss for its earnings per share. $1.59 reported versus $1.81 that was expected. And the stock went into a tailspin after hours last night before stabilizing this morning, totally down about 7%. It's interesting as Netflix actually beat expectations for its revenue. But the forward guidance that it gave for Q3 in terms of new subscribers was 2.5 million, which sounds impressive, but is actually less than half of what analysts were expecting. In other news, the labor market is emitting signs of distress that we haven't seen in months. Job openings are down, and as the Wall Street Journal pointed out, Google searches for file for unemployment have stopped going down. Now, this may sound like business as usual for the crisis that we're in, and it is, but it's not just that the picture is not getting better, it's getting much, much worse. I'm looking at the number of job postings, and major industries are down 35 to 50%. And that's not compared to pre-crisis levels, that's compared to just last month. This as the spread of coronavirus accelerates throughout the world. India just exceeded over 1 million total confirmed cases, and the U.S. continues to set records for the number of cases that it has per day. Yesterday, there were over 75,000 new cases, and this is the 11th time this month that the U.S. has set a record for number of daily new cases. And lastly, the 30-year mortgage rate for fixed rate is currently the lowest it's ever been. It now stands at just 2.98%. Analysts are attributing the dip to the billions of dollars worth of support the Fed has provided to the RMBS market. And of course, that is significant. But what I'm thinking of is something that Raoul discussed in his after hours segment on Tuesday, which is about demographics and how that causes a secular slide in demand for mortgages as time goes on and baby boomers leave houses to millennials and they don't have enough money to buy them. So of course, it's great to track the flows and liquidity, but it's important to keep an eye on the macro as well. And with that, let's go over to Ash and Raoul. I think we all know by now Things are pretty fucked out there, for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holes barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. Thanks, Jack. Welcome back, Ralph. It's good to be here as ever, Ash. It's Friday, so I'm happy. Well, once again, another Friday. Yeah, you know, it's weird because the last few weeks have come on and said the same thing. There's nothing going on. I mean, I was just going through a list. I mean, the S&P has basically been the 3150, 3200 range now for over a month. I look at the BKX, it's kind of nailed at 17, it's been there for since April. I look at Bitcoin, it's become so non-volatile, it looks like a two-year note yield now. It's not going anywhere, it's at 9200. 10-year yields have been in a flat line at 62 basis points for as long as I can remember now. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I've never experienced a time like it. But then I'm just staring at my screen next to me and, and on it, I'm looking, wow, okay, so some things, some things have moved. 
And if I look at what's moved, well, the gold mining shares, they're up 34% year to date. Mm. Meanwhile, the banks are down 35% year to date, or energy, which is down 39% year to date. Just a simple, you know, set, sell oil by gold in terms of equity sectors yields you about 70% returns this year. I mean, so it's a weird world where nothing's going anywhere, but everything's going somewhere. It's, uh, you know, I've not seen anything like this. Yeah, it's an interesting paradox. I, I, it makes me think, you know, first of all, that sometimes you don't have to be complicated. You just need to actually understand what's happening from a framework perspective. That's right. I mean, I've always been interested when you hear people like Stan Druckenmiller talk about this kind of stuff is, you know, he's got two bets on, you know, I, I spent some time talking about portfolio construction and how I look at trade ideas and stuff in the Ask Me Anything that I did this week uh, for the Real Vision Pro tier. One of the things that, you know, Stan Druckermiller, he's got basically two bets on right now that he talks about. You hear him, if you filter all of the Stan stuff, he basically says he's long technology and he's also bearish on the central bank bubble. So it's basically a long bonds, long technology bet. Um, and that bet been a phenomenal bet for the last two years. Just that one simple bet, just getting the right bet is just a, a very good thing. Sometimes, however, things don't go anywhere. The only thing that really moved, otherwise, I mean, the dollars sold off a bit, but nothing dramatic. Um, yeah, I think gold miners were the only real action in town for the time being. And gold itself is, is okay, but it's been pretty much stuck at 1800 for a while as well. Yeah. Well, talk to us a little bit about the flip side of that coin, which is what's the source of this stasis in your view, and how does it fit in to your macro framework? I think it's to do with central banks somehow suppressing volatility. There's no other real explanation why volatility. I think there's, a, there's some sort of offsetting function going on between the lack of stimulus, but the existing i.e. from the Fed balance sheet's not growing anymore, but there's fiscal stimulus in place and it just seems to have stopped everything. I don't really know. Um, I don't really understand why things have stopped moving. Um, now, it does happen from time to time. I never forget when I, I did a BBC show called Million Dollar Traders back in 2008 and we filmed it over um, July 2008 and nothing was going on. And everyone was like, this is the most boring market in the world. And after that, suppressed volatility leads to hypervolatility and the whole world blew up. Um, and so I, it feels to me we're going to get some big moves. Which way? I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, you mentioned the Ask Me Anything that you did with Max Weethy for the pro tier. I, I thought it was really interesting. Obviously, that was like a 90-minute deep dive into the way you think about the world, your macro framework. Could you give us a little bit of some context with what you guys discussed on that show? Because I thought it was yeah, really but, Well, actually, it's because a lot of people in the pro tier were, are very interested in some of the macro research that Julie and I write, but they're finding it difficult to understand how to implement. And different people have got different issues. And look, we all have. So it's actually very useful for somebody to sit and lay out, okay, this is how I build my investment framework. This is how I research an idea. This is how I fit it into my framework. Then when I've got a framework, well, what are the best expressions? How do I express that? What asset class do I use? Do I do all of these things? Or I, how do I choose the best one? How do I understand risk reward? And then how do I look at market timing? 
how do I how do I understand where I'm wrong? How do I run my portfolio construction and risk? You know, if you think about Stan Druckenmiller's position, for example, he can take double the risk in that position essentially because he's long long the raciest equities, but also he's got the bond bet alongside it. So that allows him to generate some sort of alpha in those kind of bets, and that's portfolio construction. And a lot of people look at bets in isolated terms. And I'm trying to get people to think about, no, think about your overall portfolio. You know, I've talked a long time about being long the dollar and long gold. And I've always said, listen, if part of my thesis is wrong and the central bank printing weakens the price of the dollar, gold's going to go up. But my actual thesis is they both go up. And over time, they've both gone up. But right now, gold's going up and the dollar's been going down. What do I care? If I look at it in portfolio terms, but everyone looks at everything in discrete terms. The other thing I talk a lot about is time horizon. Understanding, as Paul Tudor Jones told me, is the best investors and the best traders have their idea horizon match their trade time horizon. Because yeah. so many people go, well, I think the world's ending. We're going to go into a deflationary bust, and I'm going to short the S&P this week. No, you're shorting. If you're taking a one-week view on the S&P, you're only taking a view on what you think the S&P is going to do this week. And a big picture view like that, based on long-term economic data, is not the key influencer of the week in the S&P. It is in the next six months in the S&P, potentially. So it's getting those the matching of time horizons that really helps people understand what it is they're doing, the risk rewards of the positions, and how to think about stuff. You know, so I see it a lot on Twitter. People always flinging mud at each other. Oh, that guy's wrong. That guy's wrong. I'm like, you don't know whether he's wrong. Where did he buy and sell this thing? And he or she. And what is the time horizon for the trade? And how much are they risking? And where are they? Where do they say they're wrong? And where are they looking for the upside, the risk reward? You know, these things are really important. You know, how much you risk on a trade versus your expected returns. You know, all of this stuff needs to go into portfolio management. It's not easy. There's, there's a reason. I don't know if anybody's not seen the video, but I urge you to go and watch the masterclass where I thought well, it was the chain, maybe it was the chain, I think, where Kyle Bass interviews John Burbank, two famous hedge fund managers. Kyle's first question to John is, how the hell do you size a trade? Because everyone struggles with it. You know, getting trade sizing right, because everybody just thinks, oh, I like this trade, I'm going to go all in. You don't want to do it like that. Again, listen to people like Stan Druckenmiller who talk about there's time to be a pig. That's when everything is in your favor and momentum itself. You certainly don't try and short the equity market at all-time highs with maximum conviction. That's crazy. You need to see confirmation action. You need to understand your risk rewards. You need to understand how your portfolio overall is going to do with this. So, yeah, I spent an hour and a half talking about that for uh, Real Vision Pro, and the, the feedback was amazing. I think people really found it useful. Yeah, it was a great piece. The other thing that I found interesting in that vein was when you were talking about, look, some people just have different ways of thinking about things and like different time horizons. You mentioned, for example, Peter Brandt, the great insight he has into technical trading. You said, I don't trade that way. That's not me. No, and Peter Brandt is, if you think of Peter Brandt, Peter Brandt is a casino player, not meant in a way of that he's a, you know, a frivolous gambler. He understands his odds. So what he does is if he constructs many trades with a lopsided risk reward that are slightly in his favor, i.e. his winners exceed his losers, he just has to do that as many times as possible. And he will win over time. So that's very different to constructing a macro portfolio. He's a technician. He's basing on the defined risk rewards. 
and it's defining on short-term trades and entry and exit levels. I don't do that, even though I use technicals. So I, I look at it very differently. Um, and so it's just unique. People have their unique styles that suit them. And I think that's, that's super important. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was interesting in terms of the way you see the world was you talked a little bit about the euro trade. Uh, obviously, the euro's churned around a little bit the last few weeks, uh, down as low as 106 in March, now trading at about 114. What's your big macro view on that? And why is that, I think, a good example of the way you think about the world? You see, firstly, you have to start with a piece of information that I've been in that trade since 148 and a half. So, you know, I changed my entire billing from Global Macro Investor. I was living in Spain, billing in euros, saving in euros, and had all my assets in euros. And I thought the dollar had topped. So I, I switched my billing to dollars, my savings to dollars, and bought property in the Cayman Islands and the US, which was a way of me not fiddling with the trade. That was the conviction level, and I thought that's a long-term bet. <laughs> Right. That's the kind of bet I think will play out in emerging markets over the next few years. At some point, we'll be able to buy it and walk away for 10 years. And it works really well. So that's one backdrop. So my picture is my big picture view is long. I then think, okay, where is it in the price structure? Well, it's been in this wide range, this falling channel where the euro's got weaker and it's at the top of the channel. It's not done any technical damage on my longer term view. So my view is is Okay, the downside from this, I think the euro could go to call it between 70 and 80 cents against the US dollar. So now we're at the top of the range. The actual risk reward of entering the trade here is great. I'm already in the trade, so I'm taking some small losses. But what I'm thinking is I'm now looking for confirmatory price action. Now, the biggest kind of net short position, net long position in the currency markets is now net long euros. So if anything changes in the narrative, we could see this change. So I'm not, yes, I'm always uncomfortable when it's trading at the very top of where I want it to be trading, but nothing's changed yet for me. So it's slopped around in a wide range, but a wide range is acceptable if you're looking for a break from 105 to go to 75, call it. Well, that's 30 big figures. It's huge versus, okay, we're up eight big figures right now. So it's still within the realms of risk rewards. So, you know, I always look for a three for one risk reward or more. Um, you know, yes, I'm at the top of the range and I'm under a bit pressure, but in the overall context of everything I look at, I'm not yet worried about it. Yeah. And you've also structured the trade from the perspective of your carry and other things so that you can you can be in the trade for a long time if you believe you have a long time. Well, the being is you, you don't size it massively. You size it massively when it's all working your way. So if it starts breaking tenant, so let's say if it did break down now, maybe I'm dead wrong and, it, and the euro breaks hard, fine. But let's say it breaks down. I would be looking for a nice, I use the GMI crash pattern a lot. So it falls, it rallies, doesn't take out the high and then takes out that previous low. It's something I talked about in the S&P. I've been waiting for that pattern to emerge and it's not doing it yet. Um, but that is a great signal and gives you a good chance to add risk into a trade. And then I go and zoom out and look at different time horizons and look for bigger breaks on weekly charts and stuff like that. And then you really start to add the opportunity for taking risk. So, you know, risk is a function of where you are, the structure of markets, um, what your portfolio looks like. So, you know, if you've got, if, if you know, because I've got 
gold and Bitcoin and dollars, they all kind of offset each other nicely, but I think they all go up and bonds. Um, and they all, they all have that kind of interesting portfolio construct where they can all move around separately, but they all seem to be going together over time. And I like that. You know, I'm very comfortable with positions like that. One thing I, I was interested in, I haven't had a chance to watch it, I've been so busy, but we did that long form ahead of the curve with um, various aspects of the CLO market. Have you had a chance to watch that yet? I have, and I really enjoyed it. So it's it's Chris Whalen is hosting, and he hosts uh, Ralph Del Judice, uh and Jason New, who's recently left Blackstone to join Onyx. It's it's a really fantastic, I think, overview. If you don't know anything about the CLO markets, I was watching this piece, and I was thinking, people why are should, saying, why should people care about the CLO market? The great Explain question about it. Yeah, so, so, so CLOs are basically their collateralized loan obligations. They're highly leveraged loans. They're structured financial products uh, in the same way that you could think about. It's usually analogized uh, to CDOs, a little bit different in terms of the, of the structure and the impact. Um, but you can think about it as a general bellwether for what's happening in credit markets uh, and also a potential uh, window into what might be happening to uh, the business cycle. And... Do the Fed play a part in this? So, because the Fed have been kind of dampening the volatility of credit markets. Yeah. Are they involved? Are they buying CLOs or is it freely traded markets? It gets a bit more interesting. Well, I guess my first question would be, what, what markets haven't the Fed intervened in in some way, either, either directly or indirectly? Uh, they're not buying these products directly, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, but I think that the general uh, credit conditions obviously are impacting this market as well. So, did did Chris uncover the risk of of a bigger event coming out of the CLO market? What what was his feeling about it? Well, you know, Chris is really serving as the interviewer and asking these questions and just trying to uncover it. What I think is so interesting about it, you know, I saw the when I saw the piece on Revision, uh, I thought, gosh, I hope people aren't frightened away by it because they go, I don't really know anything about the CLO market. If you don't know about the CLO market, it's a great place to dive in because it explains to you what it is, what's the significance of it, what's the size of it, how are these instruments used, and really why do you care about this market. So I think it's interesting from that perspective. It's a great CLO 101. Uh, it looks uh, more sophisticated than it is, I think, on its surface. It's a good place to start. Fascinating. Well, I'll, I'll watch it over the weekend. It's the, there's a lot of content in there. And I love kind of using Real Vision to get up to speed on stuff I don't know anything about. Um, I mean, that's the beauty of it. Having access to so many incredible experts is ridiculous. Yeah. I also had a bit of an epiphany when I was watching it. I thought, man, this, this may be a killer application for blockchain. Right? You think about what you have here. You have all of these complex cash flows. You have different tranches, different structures. Nobody knows who owns what. Nobody understands the contents of any of these products. This is a classic problem that we saw in the CDO market, the CDO squared market. It's just such an obvious use case for securitization. I've always been a little bit skeptical when I hear people talking about, like, for example, real estate securitization. Like, Why do I want exposure to unit 9A in my high rise, but not unit 9B? I, I don't really know that that makes sense. Maybe that's just a preliminary take on it. Uh, but it seems to me like a questionable use case. But something like this, where you have a massive market that creates liquidity uh, in credit markets for corporates, the ability to understand where those uh, where those cash flows are, what's been settled, these things could settle directly on chain. You could have total transparency about what the underlying products were uh, that were rolled into it, and the potential to just see that in the most clear and transparent way that we've ever seen before. As you know, what my thesis remains that we're going into a solvency or insolvency event, a solvency crisis, call it that. And we're seeing a lot of evidence 
of bankruptcies, credit card defaults, um, delinquencies across the spectrum, and the banks are provisioning. I think everybody, just if I can give anybody a tip who's interested in this, just look at the um, price of the BKX, the banking index. It's Yes, it's been stuck around 70, but it looks very correct. It doesn't look anything like the rest of the market. It's telling you that there's credit problems. And I've, I also look at the uh, KRE, the regional banks index in the US, very similar, telling me something is not right here. Um, I'm looking at the FTSE UK banks index, FTSE all share, looks terrible. And obviously the European banks have looked terrible for ages and the Japanese banks. Something in here tells me whether it's CLOs or whether it's the credit markets overall or whether it's the exposure to small and medium uh, sized enterprises defaulting or the public under financial duress. There is something still not good. And I know it's an incongruous world when the, you know, looking at the NASDAQ, it's up 22% year to date. But just remember the banks are down 37% in the regional banking index. Something is going on here. And, you know, I don't want people to lose focus on that because, you know, the honest is, as we started this conversation, there are opportunities from one sector to the other. You know, if you think of gold being the most solvent thing in the world, it cannot go bust, it has no uh, creditors, to the banks, which are the inverse of that. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating narrative in itself. And I've just uh, just finished an interview with um, a guy called Simon Dixon, who's kind of the kind of Bitcoin crypto world. Um, he's a UK guy who got in really early and fascinating guy. And his whole hypothesis that unfolded on the interview um, about money and central banks and the role that he sees of Bitcoin and gold was, uh, was really interesting to me. There were some things I'd not really thought through. So we had a great philosophical discussion about some of the things that are coming and getting really close. But a lot of it, he came out the fear of, he still thinks there's something wrong with the banking system, the structure of it overall, that it's unlikely to survive all of this. What that means, who knows? His idea, and you still keep hearing it, is that the central bank coins may end up, I mean, Richard Werner talks about this in some respects as well, that the central banks become the bankers and the banks don't exist and the fintech companies become the apps layer, which is essentially the banks now. There's a lot going on in this sector and people need to really focus on it because I know it sounds like it's all crypto rah, 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 but there's actually a lot going on in the reality of it. And there's something, some rotting carcass within the whole banking sector. Yeah, you know, to exactly that point, Raul, I looked at the chart a little bit earlier on BKX, and I'm looking at it right now. It, 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 it has a shape that's unlike anything else we see. It actually, it rolls over uh, in the second week of February, it peaked around 110. Uh, it's, it's come up a little bit, but we're still trading at 73. This is something that we haven't seen the recovery on the way we have with the broader U.S. So if there is a V-shaped recovery, surely the banks would recover, right? This, this is the kind of signal that is flashing something underneath is not right. And I know it sounds stupid in a market where the Nasdaq goes up every day, but right. something is not right. And the bond market, even though yields have been pinned, and yes, two-year yields have been drifting lower, as I've anticipated, haven't broken lower, but the banks haven't yet broken lower either, but they're not recovering. And that very much, I'm, I like technical analysis, that is a clear, consolidation pattern that is not a bottom for me in the bank share prices. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, 
it just tells me that. And, you know, um, I had the, the discussion with Sven Hendrik. Where, so I said, listen, I think we're we'll back to into, into an interesting period. And he burst out laughing at the end of the interview saying, yeah, I think it's going to be extremely interesting. It's going to be a wild second half. I think that's the case. I think it's the case that the second half is not going to be a rerun of the first half. It might be an inverse. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, just on a surface level, the divergence between those two trades, between between BKX and NASDAQ, very interesting because if you think about, obviously, there's a slightly different customer coming into it. And also, passive indexation going into those stocks in NASDAQ, showing the recovery. But people who are spending a little bit more time thinking about this on a sector-by-sector basis, clearly not as bullish, that chart would suggest. No, that's right. And think about, okay, just think about the technology versus... Um, versus bank thing in a different way. One is all zero debt, massive cash flows. That's the SaaS business model. The other side is the opposite. It's all debt. So maybe if that's the signal it's giving, is we don't want anything to do with debt or anything else. I'll own Microsoft all day. I'll own Apple all day. I'll own any of these num- companies because they don't have any debt. I mean. So they're, they're, you know, and they're just cash cows, all of them. Why would yep. you not? How are they even really going to get? The only thing that's going to hit those guys is regulation and advertising revenues if you Google and Facebook. But otherwise, and yeah, some crimping consumer spending. So they're, they're, they are still susceptible to the vagaries of the business cycle, but they have no systemic risk. There's nothing in there that if you're not a buy and hold pension guy who wants some sticker money for 401k, you've got nothing to fear maybe future expected returns are very low because they're very, very expensive. Sure. But they're not going to halve and halve again. They might halve and then over time do, do okay. But the banks, yeah, I don't know. We've got, everybody's just taken on even more debt. Everyone's just taken on this PPP debt. Everyone's just taken on, yeah. the central banks took on more debt. The governments took on more debt. The record amount of bond issuance by corporates, um, record amounts of um, uh, debts at household levels. Everybody's just taking on debt. Say, oh, hopefully I can get through this. Yeah, whams if they can't. And the banks will get it on the chin because they always do. Yeah. Yeah. And on the flip side of the coin, uh, talking about cash positions, Apple currently has more cash on their balance sheet than the total network value, the total outstanding market capitalization of Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, uh, you know, Apple's a bond that goes up. I mean, it's amazing. Right. So I, I get it. There are, there are some real reasons. Yes, tech is now crazy valuations, but I get why in a solvency event, it becomes very attractive. But at these levels, you can lose quite a lot of capital, too, I think. But you probably don't. Well, you don't lose all of your capital. That's the, that's the thing. Yeah. You know, the other interesting thing is just speaking of losing all of your capital that I should have pointed out uh, about the, uh, the CLO market, the challenge uh, with these instruments is that it's a binary proposition. And I think this is a really important thing for people to understand about the way they function. It's just a tipping function. With, there's a certain point where there's a, a loss on a tranche and then the t- tranche above it gets wiped out. This is one of the challenges for it. We saw this in the CDO market. Uh, the fact that these products are structured in such a way that adds a kind of inherent binary risk to them is also a challenge and something interesting to think about because it has that kind of processional effect risk. Yeah, and people don't know how to price that stuff once it starts changing because it looks like a AAA until it's not. 
Right. Then it looks like a death spiral. So basically, your short puts, uh, many of those products, essentially the same thing. Your short puts, and you're getting a yield, and it looks great until it goes against you and it goes to zero. So, you know, I never forget my dad lost a lot of his retirement savings back in 2001 because he was sold these products, which were kind of yield enhancement products on the stock market. What they really were was short puts. They end up being called precipice bonds because once they hit the put strike, they basically extinguished and he lost 70% of his capital that he had invested in, which is a large part because he was thought he was doing a great job because he was getting paid a like a 10% yield and he thought he was very clever. No, no, you don't get paid a 10% yield without taking commensurate risk. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. So, and, and such is the risk of structured products in general. Yeah, exactly right. I know because I've structured them in the past. <laughs> <laughs> so, Raul, as we wind down here and we look ahead uh, to next week, what are you going to be looking for? Um, I am. I'm expecting these ranges to break pretty soon, uh, whether it's next week or not, or whether it goes into August. Yes. So I'm kind of interested in that to figure out what breaks these ranges, what changes. We've just seen the virus numbers explode in the US, yeah. picking up across the world all over again. We know it's hitting economic growth. We know the trajectory of growth is slowing everywhere. Market doesn't care right now, or it cares enough to stop going up. Um, but maybe growth hasn't slowed enough to stop the market again. I don't know, but somewhere between all of this, this murky picture that's not very clear for many right now, I think will become more clear in due course. But uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to we'll have to see. You know, I. Yeah, I'm very focused on the banks right now just to say, okay, are they going to do anything? And if not, people have to learn patience as well. It's the summer. Things tend to go very quiet for the summer. And then when you think it's going to be quiet, it then picks up dramatically and everyone's scrambling to get back for, back to the office from being on holiday. So let's wait and see. Yeah. The one thing that is not going to the Hamptons this year, unfortunately, is the COVID virus. If you look at those numbers, we've been consistently taking out new highs uh, in terms of new case levels, 60,000, 65,000, 75,000, uh, all falling uh, as new highs this last week. People uh, who are optimistic about it would suggest that this is the result of increased testing Unfortunately, the mortality rates are starting to rise as well, which suggests that there really is organic growth in the number of infections. Yeah, you can also see in the, in the positive, test positivity numbers, they're all rising. So it shows you that it's not just the amount of testing, it's actually the positivity numbers as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, um, you know, it always amazes me, you can't talk about COVID and the numbers without somebody thinking you're making a political statement, but that's the world we live in. <laughs> And yeah. it's only going to get worse considering we're going into an election. Um, you know, I think that is going to be a, I think, a distressing situation for many because it's going to rip people apart as they try and force people with different views apart from each other when they don't need to be apart. Um, you can have different views and don't think somebody's your enemy. But I think this election is going to force that narrative harder than we've ever seen it done before. Yeah, Ed and I have talked a little bit about this this week. You're absolutely right. It's the most contentious period in American politics in my lifetime. Uh, and then you underlay it with a pandemic and then the, the consequent economic impact of it. You know, in my head, I think of this as a three-part model. At first, you've got the actual underlying cases. Then you've got the 
lockdown component of it. And finally, you've got the economic impact and markets are pricing the third step in that equation, so to speak. So as the numbers rise from infection and mortality, it seems to be a, a foregone conclusion that we're going to have increased lockdowns or roll down backs of the openings, which will lead to increased economic damage. And then the pricing function on the back end of that always anyone's guess when that will kick in. But the underlying economic impact of this is still worsening as we go forward. And that brings me right back again. And therefore, you need to keep your eye on the banks. Because the worsening economic impact in a world absolutely swimming in debt is default. And those defaults end up on the balance sheet of the banks. I know they provisioned a lot for it. I'm not saying the US banks are going bankrupt. I'm just saying the share price probability of them falling significantly if this slow growth continues is extremely high. And, and what are you going to be looking at, Raj? Final question when you think about this, is it going to be BKX, the KBW bank index, or are there other proxies? Yeah, I'm going to do the, the BKX or the KRE are the ones to look at. Um, you know, I'm already in some of those trades for, for Global Macro Investor. Um, but not yet for Real Vision Pro. I'm waiting for them actually to break down so we get the confirmation where you can put some risk into the trade. But I'm watching it very, very closely. Those two indices, and then if you're more international, obviously the Euro stocks, the UK, the FTSE banks index, most people don't look at, looks appalling. Um, and uh, the Japanese banks that we've talked about on Real Vision before is an area most people don't focus on, just don't look good. Yeah, sobering thoughts here at the end. Yeah. Well, sober enough to drink some rum over the weekend. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Thanks for joining us again, Ross. All right. Take care, Ash, and have a great weekend, everybody. Stay safe, everyone. Uh -huh.